This is Takeaway Only, a podcast about the hospitality industry in crisis. I'm Howie Kahn, and these are the stories of the people who take care of you. Today's guest is Soleil Ho. She is the restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle and co-host of their new podcast, Extra Spicy. I called Soleil because I wanted to know what a restaurant critic does during a pandemic, how responsibilities change, how anxiety intensifies, and what the future of restaurant reviewing looks like amidst so much uncertainty. Soleil's answers have justice and empathy at their center. As in her work, she confronts what's difficult while also offering a message of hope. We're back Friday with an all-new guest. Please hit subscribe so you don't miss it. Stay tuned now for Soleil. Today's a, a, a big day for you. You've you've launched your your new podcast today, Extra Spicy, with the San Francisco Chronicle, where you're the restaurant critic and your co-host, Justin Phillips. So congratulations on launch day and launch week. I know you've been working on it for a long time. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's been really, you know, now is a very weird time to launch a project if it's not explicitly about, like, the pandemic or about, you know, the unrest, the protests and all this stuff. Um, it's just, you know, it feels intrusive it feels strange um but you know <laughs> you just got to do it i think you'll probably be handling it in a non-intrusive non-strange way who's up first um so we released three episodes today um with vinnie ang who's a community organizer who works for sf new deal um which is this really interesting program that connects restaurants that aren't really working right now with nonprofits and community organizations organizations that um, are, you know, feeding folks. And then Padma Lakshmi, who we might know from Top Chef, um, a TV personality and also a writer. And um, Kelly McVicker, who is a local pickle maker. I like those pickles. Yeah, no, those are fantastic. And we talk all about how um, pickles are a form of time travel. It's very, Mm -hmm. it's fun. I just wrote a piece about jam, and there's kind of the same same thesis running through it. I feel like anything in anything in a jar, you know, done well and and thoughtfully, speaks to that for sure. It's interesting too, because you know the pandemic and all this stuff really colored our conversations, um, even this pickle conversation, because so many people were coming to her for uh, you know like just pandemic activities as well, <laughs> and having to think about the future in in this moment of not really being able to understand the future or predict the future at all was really fascinating. So I want to go back in time a, a little bit to when we realized this pandemic was going to happen. You're you're the restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, and it was pretty clear, you know, early on in March that restaurants were not going to be a place where anybody was going to be going or spending much time. It was unclear at that point what the takeout scenario would be, what people would be eating. That culture has emerged. But what were your first thoughts as a person who holds this job as restaurant critic when you know, we first started realizing restaurants weren't going to be restaurants anymore? Um, Well, you know, I was immediately concerned with safety, uh, especially worker safety, you know, uh, because my job, and I think people don't necessarily think this is, you know, I I interface with restaurant workers all the time, and I'm in contact with them all the time. And so many of them reached out to me immediately just to say, like, what, like, what can we do? Or like, what is the right thing? I don't know. And they they were dealing with their own ethical kind of quandaries, you know. Um, and I also realized very quickly, like, I 
and I am relied upon to kind of have these sorts of rundowns, these these takes or whatever uh, recommendations for people who don't really know and they want to be guided, right, as to like how to interact with restaurants and how to be. And in this moment when restaurants were sort of in the crosshairs of so much policy and so many fears and restrictions, um, I had to really figure out like what my stance was really quickly because, you know, I could be... You know, I could focus entirely on the consumer and talk to them about, like, you know, their safety and what places were doing things the best and whatever. Or I could think also about the laborers and undocumented workers and other people that I know were also dealing with this and whose stories were also extremely valid. Um, And for me, it felt like a moment to kind of refocus and just get people generally, right, to think more about workers and what they were going through, because it can be very easily, you know, especially since they were essential, right? Like their what they go through and their experiences could be so easily brushed aside as collateral, right? As like something that you just accept, an externality that you accept just so that you can get the thing you want. And I didn't want to be part of that. So how were you able to explore this uh, expeditiously in, in your reporting? So I um, I read a lot of policy. Um, you know, I really dug into why things are the way they are and also like what kind of was being proposed by on the federal level, right, to, to kind of fix what's been going on economically. And of course, like we found that it was really not ideal and really not great for restaurant folks or people who owned restaurants who had been incarcerated or who had like interactions with the criminal justice system. It wasn't great at all. I mean, it was atrocious, right, for undocumented people who aren't just workers, but who also own restaurants and are in the industry as, you know, entrepreneurs. I mean, they weren't entitled to any of the stimulus money or any of the bailout money. Um, And I think we, as a society, we're making a choice that we didn't value those people in this industry, right, who have propped up this industry for so long. Um, And so, you know, for me, talking to workers, you know, doing stories about how restaurant workers were faring under shelter in place. Um, I'm literally working on a story. And thankfully, you know, I'm joining a bunch of other people who've done these stories about like undocumented workers and like how, you know, what is out there for them, but also like what they're dealing with. Um, So really thinking about labor and using the pandemic to talk about labor, um, because, you know, I've done some takeout stories, of course, but that's not really a priority for me. You know, there's there's a way in which I'm I'm a restaurant person. I've been eating in them and covering them for for a long time. And I thought I really knew what I was talking about. I thought I really knew about these places and who worked in them. And and I am proud of the fact that I think I've paid attention in some of the right ways over the years. But this has been such a reckoning for me. I I, I feel like not necessarily that I did it wrong, but that there were very clear dangers that were very visible for a very long time that maybe I was just not wanting to see or, or ignoring. And I don't know if I'll be able to ever walk back into a restaurant again and see it the same way as I did before. Right. I mean, do you think, I mean, what would this new experience even be? You know, even, even putting aside the like the strangeness of even walking into a restaurant, you know, like <laughs> um, there's so much talk about the return to normalcy, right? And there's a lot of different kind of opinions on do we want normal? Do we not want normal? Um, but I think for many people who have been paying attention, right? Like you'd have to be making a deliberate choice to ignore all the things that have been really shaken out through this. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it's it's kind of like I I you know there's very few businesses where I I would ever walk into and then kind of want to see their books and want to know what their lease is and want to know how they're treating their people or or have the you know audacity to even ask those questions. But I almost feel like there needs to be now that all these things have been exposed in such a concentrated way for so many months and they were exposed before. This isn't the first time people have reported on labor issues, but. It, it's been it's been really intense. I, I just kind of want to know. Like every time a server comes to my table now, I kind of want to know. Like, are are you okay? Are you being treated okay? What's what's going on here? Yeah. No. I mean, it. I don't want it to kind of veer off into the sort of like paternalistic, like you know, um, you are inherently oppressed or have no agency in this as a worker. You know, um, but certainly, like, I think we could all use a lot more empathy towards people who work service, you know, retail or restaurants or whatever, especially considering all of this right now, as we're seeing, they're the ones who are having to be kind of the mask police, right, at stores or at restaurants. And like, for them, that's really hard because they're seen as servants, as lesser than. So like, how dare you reprimand me for, you know, um, and it's it's at the same time, like, a lot of people are in this industry because they love it, you know, and because this is very much their personality and this is their passion. And, um, you know, like those stories are really important as well. Yeah, it's true. And those maybe aren't being told as much right now as maybe they could be or should be. But people are just getting back to work right now in New York this week. We're entering something called phase two because we live in a science fiction movie and phase two means, you know, you can eat outside of restaurants a little bit in, in a structured way. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how people are feeling about going back to work and what their energy is like. And, you know, of course, in, in New York, there's a lot of commuting. People have to go far distances. There aren't necessarily, you know, people don't have cars. So even getting to work is going to be an interesting idea. Yeah, no, it's been really interesting because like I don't get you know I get a lot of emails every day and I never get requests from people who want to hear more about workers <laughs> more about labor um it's often just about like okay where can I eat in the South Bay or the peninsula or where can I eat in Marin um so it is it's interesting to like have to just dredge that up for people who don't want to know um but at the same time, it's just like, well, guess what? <laughs> uh, this is what I'm writing. Um, it's it, Yeah, like it's for me, having been in the industry for a long time, you know, about a decade, it's been very comfortable for me to reach out to restaurant people and just ask. And I think for a lot of them locally, too, like they're they're used to sort of an adversarial relationship with the food critic. And certainly like I, I criticize, too, you know, like I. I say things that are not necessarily positive about restaurants as well. Um, but I think it, I'm hoping that this kind of facilitates a different relationship and like helps people understand that it's different, you know? Well, you have worked both sides of it as, as you were saying, right? I mean, you're not somebody who's worked in newspapers your entire life. You worked in kitchens. Right. Yeah. And you know, I'm not alone in this, right? Like Tejal Rao has worked in kitchens, Bill Addison. Um, it's not like necessarily like a weird thing, but it, it does change your relationship. What do you think it would be like for you right now if you were, in fact, still doing that? <laughs> it would be really difficult. I mean, my husband's unemployed, and I would probably be unemployed, and it would be economically a very precarious and awful situation. I'm really lucky. 
So in terms of, of writing reviews, because I, I assume you will have to start writing more restaurant reviews at, at some point, what's the job of the reviewer right now in, in this climate and in this condition? Well, yeah, I mean, all the critics I've talked to, like, none of them are excited to go back, you know, um, because the the logistical thing that is complicated here is that you have to go multiple times, even if a restaurant isn't great. Um, and if a restaurant isn't doing a great job of, you know, doing all these, you know, this is added layer of health stuff too. And do you necessarily want to go back to a place where you know they're not being careful? Um, at the same time, it just didn't wouldn't seem fair to pan a place just based on the one experience. You know, it's complicated. Um, and I think people still, they do certainly crave guidance on like where to eat out. And I know the industry could also benefit from all of this, like, you know, from coverage that is positive about the, the things that they're selling. Um, and there's no better positive coverage than a glowing review. I mean, you can write all the profiles in the world about somebody or they can be a best new chef or whatever, but I don't think anything does, you know, boost the business for a place like a glowing review in the local paper. Right. And I think for me, it's important to to continue to articulate that restaurants are just being faced with a lot of really awful decisions because of so many of the awful decisions that led up to this point. You know, it's not necessarily, you know, um, a worker or a restaurateur's fault that things are shaking out the way they are, that we're reopening beyond logic right now. Um, you know, this is the end point of a lot of the structural and systemic uh, just inequity and fragility, you know, that we've built into the system because we can't conceive of another way out. And so using this viewpoint to really articulate that and really describe and sketch out like why things are the way they are for me is the important part. Have you eaten anything delicious lately from a restaurant? <laughs> um, gosh, let me think about it. I have, um, but it's really hard to remember things now, <laughs> so I need to take a little extra time to <laughs> to contemplate. Like, what happened yesterday? I don't. Even I have know. no. I have no idea. It's all one. It's all one long day, in a sense, and in a sense, everything's happening and not happening at all. It's very weird. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yes. Yesterday, I can't believe I forgot this. I went down to Stanford in Palo Alto and um, hiked around the campus with my husband and um, and some friends at a distance. And um, on the way home, we picked up some takoyaki because we had to rush home to get to my book club, <laughs> whatever. And so I, I picked out like foods that we could eat in the car and I was just like feeding him with chopsticks while he was driving. It's a nice um, image. Yeah, some really delicious fried Brussels sprouts and takoyaki. Um, for some reason, that just felt really, just really weird and different and nice. What are you reading in your book club? We're actually reading The End of Policing. Oh, okay. So your I book club's like light, light beach reads. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's kind of a revolutionary-minded book club. It's fun. Amazing. Is there a connection between policing and restaurants that needs to be talked about? Oh, it's really interesting. Um, I think there are certainly a few... Mm, a few parallels that I find that are under underexamined, especially by me, <laughs> but I could see parallels in surveillance, 
you know, and like how restaurants are built for, you know, some modicum of social control, maybe not coercively, you know, in the, in the sense of police, but in the sense of, um, you know, behaviors that are immediately kind of established as normal or abnormal based on architecture and based on layout and demeanor. Um, you know, certainly in fine dining, surveillance is very much a part of the industry. <laughs> um, and I've certainly felt watched in many ways. But yeah, no, I don't think there's a broad kind of, they don't have tanks in restaurants, thankfully. So let's say this whole time, this pandemic, this reckoning has been an opportunity for restaurants to really improve and, and get things right and and be a little bit more I- idealistic and Edenic than dystopian and, and, and policed. What do things look like for you when they're done right? What, what would be really an exciting thing for you to write about if it doesn't even have to exist? It doesn't have to be part of a reporting package, but I don't know. Let's play an imaginary game, right? What's, what, what, what would you be excited to cover? I would love, because, you know, in the Bay Area, there are a few restaurants that are cooperatively owned. Um, and, like, maybe not restaurants technically, right? But, like, Cheeseboard Collective and Arizmendi Bakery and um, Tamarack are some sort of, like, eating places that are owned collectively, that are worker-owned. Um, and I would love to see how that model stretches into the, like, the more, I guess, air quote serious dining space as well. Um, you know, how do you restructure this this model, right? How do you go beyond the brigade model? How do you go beyond the legacy of French cuisine, um, that sort of militaristic um, hierarchical model? And how do you how do you have a restaurant that operates not necessarily because or in deference to capitalism, but outside of it in some way? Um you know, I think there are a lot smarter people who are who are thinking about this and, you know, who have a firmer grasp on, like, all of that just as far as structure. But I would love to witness it. I would love to see it and experience it and just see if it's different, right? Um, I know there are even people in the fine dining space who are thinking about, like, how do we break away from this tendency that has really defined our kind of sphere, right? Um and, you know, further democratize or even just detangle our our business from business, you know, because, you know, a lot of people go into it because they're artists, they're creatives, they actually want to make something unique and good and special. But, you know, as it turns out, the people who show up are, you know, very much of a certain social class. And like, how do you how do you deal with that? Um, what that and how do you like kind of wash off that like patron artist relationship and make it a little bit more equitable and a little bit more accessible for people who don't feel a part of that. Um, I yeah, think in, like in, yeah. that kind of thing. In doing, in doing this show, I've spoken to so many people who, and, and I'm paraphrasing them, they have not said this about themselves, but I, I, I think they would identify as bad capitalists. So it, it's almost like, why even bother with that system in the first place? If, you know, the industry sort of, is pushing you in, in another way or the capitalism of it all doesn't work for you. It hasn't necessarily worked like a 3% profit margin isn't really successful in a capitalist mind frame. So almost why bother with it at all? Maybe there's a better way. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who, who are self-described bad capitalists or who don't get the loans or the investment to even do restaurants, like they don't even go to the, they don't even open the places that would 
normally be on my radar, right? Like they end up doing private chef gigs or catering or pop-ups or, you know, they do a sort of like, or even like, or even like gray market type businesses. Like they sell uh, enchiladas on Facebook, you know, um, and those are really fascinating stories as well. Yeah, I love I love these places where it's just like Venmo somebody and they'll make a beautiful dinner from some cuisine that you don't get to eat ever and the money goes right to them and they can figure out how to, you know, grow their business or not. Maybe it's just one night ever. Right. <laughs> the freaky thing about it, I love that stuff too, but I know that the weird downside to me covering those places is that, you know, there are a lot of narcs who read newspapers too. You know what I mean? Yeah, then shut down illegal. Do you get to pick um, what you cover and review by yourself, or is it a co- is it decision by committee to some extent? I pick it by myself generally. How hard do you have to fight for certain things? Uh, you know, the Chronicle has been really chill. I think because they knew who I was when they hired me. You know, um, <laughs> and so I, I normally don't. I mean. Any fight that I have to do, thankfully, I'm very privileged in that. Is that is like nominal at best. How has having this job changed the way you think about power? Oh gosh, you know, um, I've never had this much power, certainly, over other people's lives and their livelihoods, and so I'm very, very, very. Um, I don't know. Just I try to own it as much as possible. You know, I try to be really careful, especially because you know. Part of this role is that I wanted to cover more people who aren't normally covered, right, by by someone like me and in this role. But the other side of it is that you have to be a lot more careful with their stories. You know, if you want to write about undocumented workers, you have to be extremely careful with their stories. Or someone who is, you know, outside of the gender binary, you have to be really an advocate for them and like the way they want to be talked about. Um, Especially because at newspapers generally, like they're not super um, enthusiastic about using pronouns outside of the gender binary, right? Like that kind of stuff is really important to me to, to fight about. Um, And, you know, I also know that anything I publish is seen as a, an endorsement of like how I feel and um, what I see as normal and what I value and what I think other people should value, you know? Um, and so I'm just a very anxious person all the time anyway. So this is very congruent with my personality of just, just being careful all the time about what I say and do. But not because I'm afraid of being yelled at or whatever, but because I want to make sure that the world that I am enacting is one that I can be proud of. How does the anxiety play out when you publish a review? <laughs> well, I mean, I have a podcast coming out today, right? And I like, I'm just like so freaked out. I think everyone... Like I, I just, I just think that everything I do is a mistake all the time, and so like this is just like oh shit, another one. <laughs> but I keep doing things. It's weird. Uh, but yeah, like with reviews, I know like Ruth Reichel told me that being able to sleep before review is like a weird thing to do. You know, in her experience, she never had a good night's sleep before pub pub day. You know, and I feel the same way. Where it's just even if it's a positive one or even if it's like a middling one or whatever, you just, you, you want to hope that you're right. Yeah. I mean, I think what you just said about, you know, how you think everything you do is a mistake is maybe the most humane thing I've ever heard a, a critic of, of any sort say. Um, it's, it seems to be a very smart place to approach things from. It, it puts the onus on really, really making sure you, you get it right. And there's no, 
there's no cockiness there. There's no ego really. It's, you know, you're, you're, you're fighting against your own instincts in a, in a way, your, your own sense of, of wrongness to make it right. I appreciate that positive I like spin. It. No, I, 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 I like it. I mean, I think I'm also somebody who's had to convince himself over, you know, many years that anxiety is a good trait <laughs> in, in, in a writer and, you know, finding the, the certitude, um, it can't be taken lightly. It's it's like when I feel really convinced, when I have great conviction about something, that's often what I'm asking most. Like, okay, why am I wrong? What what what's 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 the hole in this? Right. No. I mean, I'm so the 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 kind of corollary to the power question is that I'm so not used to being listened to, and so like I already have this sort of like innate sense of wrongness of just okay, like, surely, right, that they, they've messed up in listening to me because I'm not used to this. And um, How did you do this then? How did you get to a point where so many people are listening to you? That's so interesting. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I think I'm always fighting with myself, you know, this idea that, like, okay, I want, I believe in a better world and I want to use this tiny piece of the world that I have some knowledge of to make that happen. Um, but at the same time, I, I just, I never have that feeling of being the smartest person in the room. You know, I, I'm always just trying to keep up with everyone else and trying to just learn and do better because I, I'm very aware of how we all grow all the time, right? Like I was, <laughs> I was a libertarian in high school, you know, like I'm hyper aware of how people change and shift and, um, there's always room for for improvement. So, who yeah. do you think in the in the Bay Area have been the great role models of of this time of this pandemic? Whose whose lessons are ringing true and and resonant with you? Whose work has mattered? Oh gosh, um, there are so many people, right? Like Jocelyn Jackson, who does Just Us Kitchen and the People's Kitchen Collective, has been such a great voice, and you know they've they've done a lot of free food programs and community events that I think have been ahead of their time. Um, oh, Jocelyn has, you know, just before these big conversations were happening, right? Like, I think the people whose work felt very fresh before is now just really like prophetic now. Um, I think Jocelyn is one of those people. And there are other people in the restaurant space, like Toriano Gordon, who is the owner of Vegan Mob in Oakland. And he's been doing a lot of work within the vegan community, um, calling people in and like really leading them through all of the recent like, you know, anti-black like violence protests, um, just helping them kind of better articulate how like their community can react and respond to all of this, you know, in a way that doesn't center whiteness. Um, he's been really great and a leader in that in that regard. I mean, it's like the Bay Area, right? Like everyone is, the reason why I came here is that everyone wanted to have this conversation already and they've been having this conversation about how to bring food and politics together and like how to, not even like bring them together, that feels like an artificial separation, but like how to expose the politics that have always been a part of food, you know? And I think for me, that's a really important thing to 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 talk about too, is just how we're not... People like me and people like Jocelyn, people like Toriano are not bringing politics into food, right? Um, we are just kind of opening up the hood and showing people it's here. It's, it's always been here. 
And like, this is how we can bring food closer to a more equitable kind of world and how we can use it to bring about, you know, more equity and more justice for everyone. Does being in a pandemic or post-pandemic change your your process as a, as a critic at all? Does it change what you bring to the table? Do you wear a disguise? Do you use your own name? What are, what are the things that you'll be doing now that you weren't doing before? I think everything's kind of the same, honestly. I mean, th- th- there's not much anyone can do if you are getting takeout, right? Like there's not like a caviar service they can add or anything like that. Um, and so... I've been able to be more anonymous yeah. in a sense. Although certainly <laughs> it's been weird doing all of these sorts of side gig type um, food orders where people are delivering arepas to your house and that kind of thing. You have to give them your address. Mm-hmm. And and so, and then they ask for Venmo, which I don't have under an anonymous name. And so it's just like, uh, this, it's this weird kind of lessens anonymity. Um, yeah, I mean... That, that's all you know i don't i've never worn a disguise i've maybe like done my hair but like it's never really been a thing what state are the restaurants in the bay area at right now what can people do with them or is is there any dine-in yet is there all is it all carry out still it depends on the county you know mm-hmm. um in napa there is dine-in mm-hmm. um currently i mean you know by the time this podcast publishes maybe this will, all will change but in um you it's know other be counties, just, just wednesday we're gonna we're gonna run it wednesday so hopefully <laughs> not too much but who knows now that's cocky <laughs> <laughs> we'll see um but currently in san francisco for instance um outdoor dining is a thing and you know there's a whole program to allow people to take over the sidewalk space or, you know, parking spaces to um, put tables and chairs out. So, I mean, they're all kind of figuring that part out. And, you know, there are a lot of restaurants that are just not even bothering with outdoor dining. They're just going to stick with takeout for now. Are there places you're super excited to cover as soon as you can? Oh, gosh. You know, at this point, (laughs) no, not yet. Just not there yet. Not in that mental space. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm just, I'm very, very, I'm not in a rush, you know. Do we get to stop being sad about restaurants anytime soon? (laughs) I mean, I think a level of sentimentality is appropriate, right? I think it, and understandable. I also don't think restaurants as they are now necessarily need to exist. I think that once we get over the morning of them. We need to think about what exactly we are mourning, right? We're mourning a foothold for for small family businesses or immigrants to actually get some economic status in this country that, you know, to ascend a little bit. And we're we're mourning community spaces and we're mourning um kind of culinary artistic spaces and we can have all those things without restaurants too. You know, and like, I think this will cause us to think beyond that model, which, as we've said, is like very, it's imperfect, right? Um, and it, in order to exist, it it also requires a lot of external costs that the diner doesn't see. Um, and so what I hope is that once we get over the sadness about restaurants, of course, like, you know, it is sad that people don't have work and it's also sad that they need to work in order to live. That's also a, a big thing, right? Um, we can start thinking positively about like, okay, what are these alternatives? What can we do? How do we achieve these same things without necessarily needing a restaurant? Have you thought of a um, a more accurate job title for yourself than restaurant critic? 
No, no, I've never even thought of that. It, so- it sounds like maybe that would be a revolutionary move, too. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, right? I don't, I don't even know. Um, I don't I don't either, but it, it's it's an interesting idea because if the thing you're covering is is the unrestaurant or you know a different kind of movement, maybe 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 it's time for the whole title to change. I'll take suggestions. Just let me know. Listeners, uh, you can find Soleil on on Instagram and DM her all your suggestions for <laughs> for, for new titles. Um, our show is called Takeaway Only. What's your big takeaway from being the restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle over the last several months? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I think it's just, it's so complicated, right? Um, and I think people, the, for me, the takeaway is that people really want easy answers to, to these really tough questions. Um, and the answers aren't easy, unfortunately. And it is painful. And it's really... You know, I think it is really also unfair to to ask all the things that we ask of restaurants and the people who work at them and talking about that without talking about all of the systemic things that led us to this point is also really unfair. Um, and I could see that I don't want to rush anyone into reopening. I don't want to be a part of that. But, you know, it, it, I think this moment is taking a lot of empathy it's not very articulate. I'm sorry, but it, it's 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 tough. I like it. Depth, empathy, toughness. Go slow. Makes sense to me. Our guest was uh, Soleil Ho today. Soleil, thank you for being here. Her new show with Justin Phillips called Extra Spicy, and it's out this week. Thanks for having me. That was Soleil Ho. You can follow Soleil on Instagram at Soleil underscore Ho, and you can check out her new podcast, Extra Spicy, wherever you get your audio downloads. Thank you so much for listening. Takeaway Only is produced by Casey Kahn, Rob Corso, and me, Howie Kahn, for Freetime Media. Our logo is by Reynald Philippe at Beepholes. Music by John Palmer. Special thanks to Kristen Millar, Antoine Ricardou, and Raphael Weil. We're back Friday. This is Takeaway Only.